Hello and welcome to episode 1839 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. We were wondering last time just how many feral cats have infested the Oakland Coliseum. <laughs> I now have an answer for you, or at least an estimated answer. It's an estimated 30 to 40 cats and kittens who have made the 130-acre property in East Oakland their home, according to a story at oaklandside.org. So 30 to 40 cats, far preferable to 30 to 50 feral hogs, even if the (laughs) cats are also feral, but still seems like too many cats, apparently. I don't know what the appropriate number of cats would be for any given 130-acre property, but if it's a ballpark... Probably not 30 to 40. Yeah, I feel like it's a lot of cats, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that I I worry about the well-being of the cats. I worry about their being sufficient, even in a place that is probably abundant in terms of its trash and and thus potential food sources. Like, they're getting, like, the proper nutritional balance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't have a reputation for proliferating with anywhere near the frequency or volume as, say, rabbits or, or, or rodents, whether rats or mice mice but they do make new cats you know they famously are in the cat making business at times mm-hmm. so uh it's not like it'll stay a stagnant population even with some fall off on the upper yes. bound of life so i think it's too many cats i think mm-hmm. that you're right that it's better than hogs apparently the hog thing in california is a real problem they're like a, yeah not just a meme not just yeah. a, a funny viral <laughs> video it's like an but... ecological disaster yes. of, of sorts i am given to understand but it mm-hmm. seems like too many cats it would be better to have fewer cats because like if you know if there were just like if there were two or even three which is you know Everybody has to live their own cat owner life the way they want to, but I'm I'm proposing three as sort of the reasonable upper bound. You know, if there were three, then they could become the front office's cats. You know, they could sure. be he could be cute and and named. We've gotten several emails in the last couple of days about good baseball cat names. Um, mm-hmm. It is a it's a rich text mm-hmm. in terms of finding names. But forty, you can't take care of that many cats. That's too many cats. Yeah. Seems like too many cats. And Ann Dunn, director of Oakland Animal Services, she estimates that it's actually not 30 to 40, but 40 to 50 feral cats. And she says, if you see that many, there are probably more. So it's like a tip of the iceberg situation. And apparently- Wait a minute, hold on. That's the thing you say about like mice and cockroaches. Is that true of cats? Are they in the walls? Where are they hiding? I mean, cats- I don't know. Cats will hide in your house- and terrify you for mm-hmm. not being found. So, like, this is a thing I might have some experience with. And you're very nervous and you're worried. And then, like, you're calling for the cat. And suddenly it's like, hey, here I am. Mm-hmm. Were, were, you, were you looking for me? But how are there that many that are hidden? They are not <laughs> tiny. They are not. I mean, they might be tiny to begin with, but they are not like roaches. I'm a dog guy and dogs are hard to hide and they don't try to hide <laughs> for right. the most part. They always want to be with you. Right. Whereas uh, with cats, sometimes they will make themselves scarce so sometimes they are like i have on we and need to be away from you yes i'm not saying all cats are french but some of them are yeah, yeah they seem french many of them to <laughs> they me seem and, french. <laughs> and dunn also said that there is uh, another feline colony just across the canal from the coliseum on hagenberger drive that easily has another hundred cats 
And this becomes a problem because most adult feral cats are not socialized and therefore are not adaptable to being a family yeah. pet. So that's a problem. Yeah, that's so a problem. They are working with various adoption services to sort this out. And if anyone is interested in acquiring a cat, as you said, we did get some listener emails and suggestions about this. Some people who introduced us to cats who already cohabitate with them, such as Rick, who emailed us and introduced us to Eckersley, called Eck for short, who was a former feral cat born in Fremont, California. So it can be done. It can be done. We had some other suggestions. uh, Jose Catseco. Kitty Henderson, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got your Catfish Hunters and your Mudcat Grants. Permando Catis Jr., if we're not sticking <laughs> with, with A's. Uh, Max Perzer. Max Perzer, I think, was my favorite one. That was really very strong. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, another problematic thing, I think, is that the cats probably represented... 1-2% to 2% of the total attendance at the most recent <sighs> Oakland A's game. Yeah. Yeah, that's an issue. So we talked last time about the fact that league-wide attendance seems to have bounced back nicely yes. and that the average attendance per game is right around where it was in 2018-2019 pre-pandemic, or at least that was the case <laughs> before that Oakland game that just skewed the average dramatically downward. So... The A's have played three games at home thus far. The home opener drew a crowd of 17,503. Since then, it has been downhill and steeply downhill to 3748 in the second game. And then on Wednesday, 2703. That's not great. That is uh, historically terrible, really. That's the, the lowest crowd count at any game at the Coliseum since 1980. It's the lowest at any major league game without COVID restrictions since August 2019, when there were 5,297 fans at a Miami Marlins game. So this is dramatically lower than that. And this is the announced attendance. So it's possible that there were even fewer fans actually in attendance. And this is not great. And it's also not surprising. I guess it's pretty predictable and understandable why this is happening. I mean, for one thing, the Orioles were in town, <laughs> so we right. got to give them that. <laughs> yeah, some of it is that. Yeah, but it's not mostly that. I yeah. think it is mostly an understandable response to the A's alienating their fans seemingly intentionally. I mean, yeah. this seems like what A's ownership wants, yeah. or at least what their actions have incentivized, have led to. And you have not only a team that tore down over the offseason, although they're off to a a decent start, seven and six, but they traded just about all of their recognizable players. Yeah. And they hiked prices just across the board. Yeah. Not only single game ticket prices, but parking prices and season ticket prices. I mean, they are just aggressively repelling their fans while of course talking about leaving Oakland and how if they don't get the ballpark situation they want they're gonna go elsewhere so I get it I mean this is like almost a Rachel Phelps in major league sort of situation at this point where it's like well yeah I mean baseball is still fun and it can be a an interesting atmosphere at the Coliseum even if there are plumbing problems and feral cats but if you're not gonna put a 
great product on the field and you're also going to charge a lot more for that product which yeah. uh, by the way anyone who thinks that player payroll is responsible for the price of tickets in MLB these days this is yet another argument right. in what is a very compelling case that those yes. things are not closely coupled the A's have lowered their payroll and they have raised ticket prices yes. so this is what you get yes it is and I can't imagine Anyone would come away from what you have just said, having drawn any other conclusion but this. But we will just reiterate it because sometimes it's useful if people were like doing dishes or like changing a load of laundry and weren't paying close attention to you. Like we are in no way impugning like the devotion of A's fans or their commitment to baseball or calling them no. fair weather or anything like that. It is just, this is, like you said, this is what happens when you drive seemingly an intentional wedge between your team and the fan base and then hike up prices uh, as part of the privilege. So it's really too bad because I don't know, like we've talked about this before. I've only been to a handful of games at whatever it was called at the time. <laughs> it wasn't Ring Central. Yes. So someone else suggested that they should call it Ring Worm. Oh, <laughs> now that it is currently infested by With cats. cats, yeah. Yes. So I've only been to a handful of games there, but one of them was the A's were playing the Yankees. And so like it was a well-attended game because the Yankees were in town, but it was not as if the only people there were Yankees fans. Like there were boisterous A's fans. They were sure, into yeah. it. It had a great vibe. Mm -hmm. You know, like people were there to see baseball and they cared about it and they... You know, they shouted down the Yankees fans and it was just, you know, I was I was like, this is a great this is great. This is a great baseball atmosphere. And so it is just so discouraging that, you know, when you are gifted with that, with a with a fan base that clearly wants to care about your team and does care about your team to disregard that that prior sort of emotional investment because you're not willing to make a financial one. It's just really, a, it's just a shame and they deserve, those fans deserve better. And so the people who play for the A's right now and the people who work for the A's, you know, and are trying to do their best to put a winning team on the field despite just wild budget restrictions, everybody involved here deserves a lot better than what they're getting. And it's, it's a real problem. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the projected payroll, according to roster resource, 50 million for the A's, which is the lowest in MLB. So I don't know what the end game is here. I mean, if this is what ownership wants so that they can say, well, fans are not supporting the team and therefore that strengthens our case for leaving or for prying a ballpark out of Oakland. Right. And they can argue, oh, it's uh, because we have this old ballpark that is infested with feral cats, which uh, granted, I mean, just because it's old doesn't mean that it's necessarily infested with feral cats. I haven't read that Wrigley is infested with feral cats or that Fen Way is infested with feral cats, so that is uh, not necessarily a product of its age. But that ballpark has problems, and despite the vibe and the atmosphere yeah. you noted, like, sure, they totally. could use a new ballpark. It's totally. just the, the conditions under which they are expecting to get it, and not just yes. the ballpark, but also the whole real estate kitten caboodle <laughs> kit and caboodle but in this case perhaps all right you get it so Wait, i think is, is that expression kit and caboodle have i been saying is. that wrong my entire life yeah it's not wow. kittens although in this case it, it could be. i mean but you say kitten caboodle like you you yes, do an it sounds the same. as like a you know to to signify the and the joining makes <laughs> an mm sounds right. right so it's kit 
<laughs> so I don't know what to say. Like I, I wouldn't say that A's fans should be supporting this team in this effort and the lack of investment that ownership has made in this payroll. They should be voting with their feet and with their butts being on the couch instead of in the ballpark. But does that just further the aims of ownership? It's like a lose-lose situation sort of. So it just it sucks. <laughs> it just generally sucks. Yeah, it genuinely sucks. And I get that when teams relocate, they take baseball from one place and they put it in another place that didn't have it at that level. Although it's not as if there isn't baseball in and around Vegas. But setting that aside, like I, you know, I just hope that if the team relocates, that we are able to hold on to like what I don't know. I don't know. It's just really too bad. Like this is a storied franchise, you know, this is like, and they have great uniforms and all yep. this hair, you yep. know, and <laughs> they have smart people working for them and they have good players and they used to have a lot more of them than they do mm -hmm. now. It's just, it doesn't have to be like this. And I, I wish that we had better mechanisms in place to say like, we can kind of rework all of this so that we have owners who are in a position either, you know, even if we take the ownership group there at their word where they they can't afford to spend more, like even if we believed that, which we don't, but even if we did, like we should be able to demand that they do spend more. Like we've talked about before, there are only 30 teams. Like we are unfortunately lousy with billionaires. <laughs> like surely we can find someone else who can buy a franchise and say, look, we're gonna we're gonna really commit to this thing and, you know, sort of pay back what we have already received in in time and treasure from the fan base. And we just don't have that. And it's it sure feels bad. Mm -hmm. There used to be feral cats at Shea Stadium, and I'm looking at a story here from 2008 before the Mets moved to City Field, and there was uh, someone, an organizer for a local group called Neighborhood Cats that claimed that there were 20 to 40 cats who called Shea Stadium home, although a Parks Department spokeswoman claimed that there were only a couple of cats and that when they were caught, they're taken to a shelter. So there is a history of feral cats at ballparks and perhaps old dilapidated ballparks that will soon be abandoned. Anyway, worried about the cats, more worried, I guess, about the franchise just in general. So yeah. 2,703, the number of announced fans at that game, that is lower than the number of hits that Miguel Cabrera has recorded in his career. How's that for a segue? Oh boy. As we speak, he's still sitting on 29.99 after he had three in his previous game. The Tigers are playing as we speak. He is 0 for 2 thus far, but maybe he'll get to 3,000 while we're recording or soon after, or if not, any day now. And yeah. that is, I think, usually an opportunity to appreciate someone's career. And we can do that, especially with someone like Miggy, who... These days, we kind of only talk about him when he reaches a milestone, you know? Yeah. It's kind of the Pujols situation where when a counting stat increases or goes past some milestone, we talk about them, and otherwise we don't so much, although both of them are off to pretty hot starts this season. And, of course, Pujols has the storyline of returning to St. Louis. But Miggy, I think, is interesting for a few reasons. First... Well, 3,000 hits, it's impressive even if it's an arbitrary number. 
it's more impressive, I think, that he is part of various even more exclusive groups, people who have done 3,000 hits and also something else. So the 3,000 hit 500 homer club, of course, he will be the seventh member of that club along with Aaron and Mays and Pujols and Eddie Murray and Alex Rodriguez and Rafael Palmero, of course, who could forget. So that's an exclusive group. Even more exclusive is the 3,000 hits, 500 homers, 300 batting average club, which once Cabrera is in there will just be Aaron, Mays, and Mickey. Wow. And that's pretty cool. So... Pujols, of course, was in that club, I guess, and is no longer because his average fell below 300 in his age 40 season, I think, which is where Mickey will be next year. But I don't think Mickey will fall out of this. I mean, if he plays to Albert Pujols' age, then I guess he would. But assuming that he does not play that long, he only has one guaranteed year left after this one on his right. contract. So. If he were to call it a career after 2023, after his age 40 season, then I think he will still comfortably have that 300 average because he's at 310 now. Right. And even if he gets, say, 800 more at bats over this season and next season and hits 250, which is about where he's been for the last couple of years, his average would only fall a few points to 306 lifetime. So he has a bit of a buffer there. So I think that he will retire as a member of that club. And that's pretty impressive, especially in this era. I mean, much of Mickey's career came during a higher batting average era than the one we are currently in. But still, his averages are impressive. Like yeah. a lot of the players who have the highest career averages are from earlier eras where batting averages were higher. So yeah. he's kind of a, a throwback in that respect. And, you know, he's in some other exclusive groups like the 3,000 hits, 500 homers, 600 doubles club will be just Aaron and Pujols and Cabrera. So it's a really impressive career. He and Pujols are among the best right-handed hitters of all time, and yep. they are both winding down at the same time. And so we should appreciate their prowess when yeah. it does pop up. And, you know, yeah. we're, we're getting at least occasional feel-good sentimental moments with each of them, whether it's because of a homecoming in Pujols' case or because of this milestone. And, and Mickey treated us to his 500th homer last year, and very soon he will get that 3,000th hit. So congrats to Cabrera. Yeah, I I feel this way, I guess, a bit more with Pujols than I do with Miggy because even though, you know, he he hasn't been like the guy he was for a while, like we've had recent good seasons from Cabrera, like he, he put up, you know, five wins in 2016, like we've seen the mm -hmm. good version of him in relatively recent years, but I know that when like Pujols has, has approached milestones or he returned to St. Louis, there's also just... It feels like an important opportunity for for younger fans for us to be able to say like, hey, we have a moment to remember this guy who was incredible at the peak of his powers, and we need you to like understand what that looked like. Yeah, right. <laughs> like I need, I need the youths to <laughs> to get it. I need them to like mm -hmm. look on Albert Pujols' numbers as like a fan of a team that isn't the Cardinals in despair, right? Like I I, right. I I have need of that in my life. I Ben last night I watched did you know that on uh Netflix has a new documentary about the the rise and fall of Abercrombie and Fitch, the, yes, the clothing that. brand. Mm -hmm. And there is a moment in that documentary where a human man explains the concept of the mall like what a mall is and first of all 
I guess we could press the the documentarians about how necessary that is because like malls still exist. They -hmm. are just not as culturally central. I am given to understand to young people as they were like when we were young. Although I don't know, like, do you have a mall experience when you grew up in New York? I do. Yeah. I mean, not in Manhattan, obviously, but I used to go upstate often with uh, grandparents or family members. There there was a house up there. And so that was a a big mall area. Spent a lot of happy hours and Spencer's gifts. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, like this guy takes a moment to like describe what a mall is. To, to, I guess, the young people who are watching this and are somehow interested in Abercrombie and Fitch as if, like, it's going to be as culturally resonant with them as it was with our generation. And I just felt myself turning into dust, <laughs> becoming a pillar of salt. He's like, imagine a search engine you can walk through or like an online catalog that's an actual place. And I was like, is this necessary or is this elder abuse? And so sometimes I feel that way about you know guys like Pujols where they've managed to sustain themselves in the big leagues even though um their glory days are behind them and i sometimes think that like very young fans look on us you know more seasoned fans as if we are fabricating the pleasure that you were able to derive from watching them and it's like no they're really good yeah and so i need i need them to keep being really good temporarily so that we can look back on the times when they were really good for longer stretches so that I don't feel like dust and (laughs) don't have to describe like, you know, impactful World Series moments as an online catalog that's an actual place. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing a weekly Better Call Saul recap pod on the Ringer's Prestige TV pod feed with Joanna Robinson, and that's another strong source of mall content, Better Call Saul. That's not the main reason I would recommend it, but nice to see malls there too. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, Pujols is like, historically (laughs) like his decline phase is incredibly prolonged and and we've talked about that before and so it's rare for someone who was that good to fall so far i mean that sounds cruel and then keep playing for so long right and so it's a really really long time and a lot of people who have come of age as fans who know albert pujols (laughs) you know it's not like they missed albert pujols but they missed the first cardinals go around of albert pujols and they know only the angels albert pujols and it's uh, not quite the same guy so yes and and cabrera is kind of following that same pattern in a less extreme way but it is nice at least to see the highlights and michael clare at mlb.com just did a little retrospective on miggy's lone bunt hit of his whole career which came back in 2006 against chris young and uh cabrera has been joking about maybe laying another one down one of these days i don't know if it is entirely a joke but yes it's good to have the opportunity to appreciate them and to see those old highlights but also It's going to be quite a while, I think, before we see another player reach the 3,000 hit threshold, like a really, really long time, potentially. The last time we saw one was Pujols, who got his 3,000th in 2018. So it hasn't been that long since then. And and before Pujols, it was Beltre in 2017, and then it was Itro in 2016, and it was A-Rod in 2015. So there's a whole flurry of them. But there's not going to be one for quite a while. And Dan Simborski wrote about this for Fangraphs last September, and he ran the numbers, and he pointed out that the number of 
active players with 2,000 or more hits is like basically at an all-time low unless you go back to like the World War II, post-World War II era where players lost a, a lot of peak years or before that. I mean, you know, you just had fewer games and fewer teams back then, of course, fewer players in general. So we just don't have a lot of active 2,000 hit guys at this point. I mean, you have Cabrera, you have Pujols and Yadier Molina who were on the verge of retirement. You have Robinson Cano and Joey Votto who have chances, although they are, what, 40 and 39 at this point, right. or, or 39 and 38, and they are batting a combined 153 thus far this season. They're not yeah. off to the strongest start. So I don't know who's going to do it, but barring some improbable late career resurgence, and I wouldn't put anything past <laughs> Joey Votto at, at this point in, in that respect, but... It's probably going to have to be one of the younger players, and, and it'll yes. be someone, but no individual player looks like, I mean, forget a lock, but like even likely to do it. When Dan ran his numbers with his Zips projections, Jose Altuve was the highest projected likelihood of getting there, and he was at 34% probability at the yeah. time. And after that, it was uh, Freddie Freeman and then, you know, Tatis and Soto and Acuna, guys like that who are just so far away from doing it that obviously they could, but there's just, you know, many years to transpire before that could happen. So right. someone will do it. Like Dan said, Zips projected that I think 1.6 currently active players would eventually get there. So it's not like the... 300 wins conversation where like you know people have been kind of false alarm like are we going to get another 300 win guy for decades and we have but at this point we really might not just because of the way that pitcher usage has changed we'll get another 3,000 hit guy but it might be a decade or more I mean unless like Cano or Vado does it it's just going to be a really long time and, and probably the longest gap between players getting to that threshold since just eyeballing the list, I, I guess it was like a 12-year gap between Stan Musial and Aaron, 1958 to 1970, and that was because of the post-World War II gap in right. players getting to that point. But since then, we've never gone, you know, 10 years or, or even close to that, and I think we will. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, just settle in. I, I guess enjoy it. I mean, we're not like super milestone-centric people around here, at least when it comes to counting stats and round numbers, but it can be a cool thing, and it's yeah. going to be a while before we see it happen again. Well, and I think, it, you know, my thought on the milestone chase is a lot like my thought on Hall of Fame stuff, which is that like it is not the most important thing to me, but I think it really, really matters to the players involved. Like, I yeah. think... It is quite meaningful to these guys when they are able to sort of say, I am part of this, you know, this part of the baseball pantheon is now open to me and I'm, I am stepping into that role. And I think that means a lot to them. And so insofar as I care, I think a lot of it is just like, I bet it, you know, it'll mean something to Miggy. Like it'll really mean something sure, to yeah. him. When Pujols got his 3000th hit, he did it in Seattle against the Mariners. And I happened to be at that game. And like, he, you know, he was a, an opposing player reaching a milestone and they stopped the game and they like put stuff up on the video board and everybody, like he got a standing ovation in, a, in an opposing ballpark to mark this moment. And mm -hmm. you could tell it meant something to him that like, 
these fans who want they were like you are actively working against our interests here and the angels won that game and so everybody was kind of annoyed but like we stopped and we stood and we clapped and it's like i think that outside of the postseason we don't always do as good a job as we maybe should in like marking the moments during the regular season that are not just like that wasn't an angels moment right like that was a baseball moment like a capital v baseball moment and i think that milestone chases give us an opportunity to do that to be like wow i just saw like i saw history that was so cool Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know i've gone to a ballpark a lot of times and seen i mean not nothing but nothing good right like (laughs) it was just like a day i spent and this was a day where i was like i got to see this guy like not just 3,000th hit. That's really cool. And it it was nice that, you know, everybody seemed to have an appreciation for that. Nobody was booing him. Like, we all stood up and cheered for an opposing team's player. It was it was nice. So I think that, you know, it affords us those opportunities, too, to kind of pause and be like, huh, this is part of a story that people are going to tell about this game and the players involved for a long time. And I got to see it. And that's neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say so. And, you know, of course, we're in a low batting average era now, historically so. And also a high walk era, which does make it harder to get to 3,000 hits. I mean, there's some really great all-time hitters who don't have 3,000 hits, and you do a double take, and you're like, oh, that guy doesn't have 3,000 hits? Well, yeah, it's because they walked so much that they didn't uh, accumulate enough plate appearances to get the hits while walking so much. And, you know, you look at, like, Juan Soto, for instance. I yeah. mean, obviously he has the skills to get to 3,000 hits someday, and he might, but he also walks just so much that it will be right. harder for him to do. But there could be changes in the game that cause a batting average bounce back at some yeah. point over the next several years that does make it more feasible for someone to get there. So right now we're looking at it and saying, oh boy, it's going to be years and years, but who knows? Things could change. Someone could have a breakout. Someone could have a bounce back and we could be talking about this sooner than we think. It's hard to anticipate the future, but yeah. yeah. Speaking of of Pujols, I, I keep seeing on MLB TV like the MLB TV flashback and I get excited because, oh, I'm going to see some fun highlight. And then it's like Pujols hitting his first home run back in a Cardinals uniform like a week ago or a little more than that. It's like the monkey's paw curled because like I always want them to add more highlights because they just like they have the same highlights on very heavy rotation from the last few years or even last year alone. And now they have refreshed the lineup, except that it's stuff that happened like a week ago and it's very fresh in my mind. It's like, yeah, please dig into the deep vault of highlights that you have that we have no access to that we would all like to see. I just I don't know. Explore the studio space, people. I don't know why they limit it so much to just extremely recent events and so few of them. Just show me a broader cross section of highlights and memories, please. Yeah, we have years and years and reams of tape well you don't even keep it on tape anymore but we have terabytes of highlights i don't know if that's a good way to describe it either but yeah like we have the resources to have a more diverse rotation both in terms of eras represented and the players and like i don't mind if the footage is grainy show me more old stuff i don't know it's weird All right, and we got an email. This is uh, not a long or in-depth enough answer for a stat blast, although I will have a stat blast later in this episode. But this came from Tom, 
And it's a question about Gabriel Arias, who debuted for the Guardians this week, the latest big prospect to be called up, mm-hmm. a top 100 Fangraphs guy, top 100 yeah. Baseball America guy. He came up on Wednesday and made his debut in a doubleheader. He didn't get his first hit until the second game, Mm -hmm. but he did reach base twice in the first game in an unusual way. And Tom asks, Gabriel Arias is playing in his first major league game today for the Guardians in his first at bat in the second inning. He reached on a throwing error by Tim Anderson. Nine batters later, no outs had been recorded. It was a bad day for Dallas Keuchel. That is an understatement. (laughs) And Arias reached on a fielding error by, you guessed it, Tim Anderson. Maybe this is a too qualified fun fact, but it feels like there's something interesting in there. Has anyone ever reached base in their first two MLB at-bats, or plate appearances for that matter, on errors? How about with any of these qualifiers by the same fielder in the same inning with no outs recorded between those at-bats? Well, no qualifiers needed, at least when it comes to the first two plate appearances of a career Frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson did look that up and found that, at least according to the play-by-play data that we have, no one has ever started their career with two plate appearances that were too reached on errors. And I wonder what you're thinking if you're Gabriel Arias in yeah. that situation. It's like, <laughs> I heard this league was good. <laughs> like, <laughs> is this it's going to be this easy every time they're just going to throw the ball away? Baseball, what? Like, it's hard? <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I would be, I don't know that I'd know what to think, because I'm sure that they have a sense of his profile coming in despite this being his debut, but it's not like you're like, we got to respect the speed and right. rush the throw. Like, you're not doing that for a guy who's up in his first game. So, yeah, it would be a very strange thing. And then you'd have, do you have, like, an emotional come down when you're, you know, going into future games and you're having to, like, face the grind of, Along at bat and striking out and and more sh- sure-handed like plays. It's weird from Tim Anderson. He's normally good about that stuff. So I don't know. It would be a very weird way to start. But I think you'd probably be like, "Well, I got him. I I'm on base. Here I am. Yeah. This was the this was the goal. Even if it was right. achieved in a a weird way that I had less to do with than I might like." <laughs> I feel like it would loosen me up, like it would take the pressure off me a little. It's like, oh, look at this. (laughs) Back-to-back plate appearances, the big leaguers screw up too, and a good established player like Tim Anderson. Okay, errors are permitted up here. You don't have to be perfect. (laughs) Can anybody here play this game? So Ryan also looked up and found that there have been six players who reached on an error in their only plate appearance ever of their major league career. So this distinguished group includes so this is the the same size club as the 3000 hits 500 homers club six players it's cal crum from 1918 icehouse wilson <laughs> from 1934 barney muscle from 1940 that is uh, m u s s i l l sadly huh. george enright 1976 Rick Gorecki, 1997, and most recently, Aquilino Lopez in 2005. So four of these players were pitchers. Enright is a catcher. Icehouse Wilson was a pinch hitter in this lone plate appearance of his major league career. And I'm sure everyone is wondering why Icehouse, as I was. And, of course, he has a pretty comprehensive Sabre bio. 3,000 words or more. I mean, thousands of words on Icehouse Wilson who had one major league plate appearance. And according to this Sabre bio, which was written by Chad Moody, it was during Wilson's breakout 1933 season on the gridiron, he was an accomplished football player as well, 
that he received the nickname by which he became forever known. In an ongoing attempt to boost the image of the football program at St. Mary's, the school was prone to, quote, bolstering players' reputations with nicknames that promised to titillate the fans and writers in distant cities. In distant times, even. We are still being titillated by this nickname decades after this. As such, Wilson was given the colorful moniker Ice House. Exactly how he received it remains somewhat murky, however. One account has Coach Madigan, a large, cocky Irishman with a booming voice and a louder wardrobe, labeling Wilson with the nickname due to his coolness under competitive fire, which would be a good origin story. Another, perhaps more amusing account has prominent St. Mary's publicity man Bill Stevens simply pulling the name out of a hat. (laughs) But... Whether it was pulling it out of a hat or it was his coolness under pressure, he became Ice House and still is, as far as I'm concerned. He had, like, a hat full of nicknames? I guess so. And he just had, like, were they all, like, food adjacent? Were they all (laughs) home appliance adjacent, cooling adjacent? I don't know if they were themed or what. I'm reporting breaking news, which is that Miggy has struck out swinging. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like Ice House is a great nickname and it does, it does imply like you have to keep your wits about you in a moment where you might be able to press the advantage as a result of a fielding error, right? You want to take advantage of, of that mistake. I can't believe that we're as far into this podcast as we are and you haven't brought up Shoei Otani yet. I don't have a transition (laughs) here, but I'm (laughs) like, we're at 38 (laughs) 38 minutes and change. And I know showing impressive restraint here. Yeah. We're talking about prospects making their debuts and guys who reached on an error in their only plate appearance like i mean yeah. I'm, I'm glad to have known about ice house and of course there's a 3000 word saber bio about some of these guys because they just do such an excellent job but like hey ben do you want to talk about shohei otani i do i have uh, i have one more thing to say okay. before shohei otani well wow. two i guess one is that it was uh, also a throwing error in ice house's case and he ah. ended up on second base but then he was stranded over the next two Tigers batters, and then the game was over, and so was his big league career. Poor Isos. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say, you brought up on a recent episode the idea of there being a lot of rainouts and weather-related postponements this month, and that does seem to be the case. So we got an email response from listener Brock, who said, I just listened to your most recent episode and wanted to chime in on the issue of weather postponements. I'm what you might call obsessed with the issue of climate change. Also, being a baseball superfan leads to a natural interest in the intersection of these two topics, an area that I feel has been under-discussed in baseball-related media. I agree. Yeah. So the trend in weather postponements is something I like to keep my eye on. This is always especially relevant in April, where we, of course, tend to see significantly more postponements than in any other individual month. To answer Meg's question, yes, we have indeed been seeing a higher-than-usual rate of postponements this season. Mm. The record for most postponements in a single month, this is what I was thinking of as we were speaking, had previously been held by April of 2007 before that was broken in April 2018 when we saw 25 weather postponements. That was wild, including six in a single day on April 15th. That record will almost certainly continue to stand due to not getting a full April this season, but on a rate basis, we are indeed tracking close to that record, and he gave me a little breakdown of recent April. So 2018 was 25 postponements, 0.83 per day. 2019 was 14, 0.47 per day. 2021 was 15 postponements, 0.5 per day, not including COVID-related postponements. And this season so far is 10 postponements in 14 days. So that's a rate of 0.71 per day. 
Brock continued, it is perhaps worth noting that teams seem to be more willing to preemptively postpone games in April because they have more opportunity to make up games later in the season. Nevertheless, the trend has been and will likely continue to be toward more weather-related postponements. I would be remiss to not mention that in addition to more April postponements caused by increased rainfall and winter weather destabilization, we will certainly continue to see other climate-related postponements as a result of wildfire, like we saw when two games were postponed or relocated in September of 2020 due to fire or air quality as well. Although not all the the games that should have been postponed were postponed that month. Perhaps not, yeah. yeah. As well as due to hurricanes, in my opinion, Brock says it is also only a matter of time before we see games regularly postponed postponed due to heat when conditions may be unsafe for players in outdoor environments not to mention unsafe for fans and stadium employees which is a depressing thought but perhaps a necessary one and yeah i mean we saw the rangers with their retractable roof stadium have an emphasis on the heat the temperature at games and fans being unwilling to go to those games which was probably an issue there even before the recent ramp up in world temperature but not getting any better and there was actually a a not a postponement, but a game that was curtailed just this week that ended early due to rain, the game in Chicago on Wednesday. And looks like Brock says that there's another storm system rolling through the Midwest and South over the weekend. So there's potential to disrupt that weekend series in Kansas City. So yeah, it's a a bleak thought, but Obviously, this is an issue that is uh, much bigger than baseball, and we don't want to end up in a situation like the movie Interstellar, where the Yankees are just a bunch of scrubs who are on a travel team and play at some little local field in the middle of a dust storm because society has been decimated. (laughs) But um, yes, this does seem to be, and I don't have full historical data here on, on postponement rates, but would not be at all surprised if this is being elevated over time. Yeah, it's it's something that I have certainly wondered about when it comes to like how like what is the it is now the Arizona Complex League because we love to have acronyms that are shortened to body parts that break, but like what is the future of play like in the ACL? I imagine like an underrated problem for the state of Arizona just generally is going to be water rather than heat, but you know, how do you schedule around the increasing creep of temperatures here like what happens in florida when you have sea level rise so Mm -hmm. it does seem like the the kind of thing that it's weird we don't talk about more like i think there is i know there have been some reported pieces on it but it feels like there's good reported work to be done there about the various disruptions that we are likely to encounter as time goes on you know there's a reason that like there's a retractable roof at chase and that Mm -hmm. they pump air conditioning into that place like you don't want to have an august day game without those things in the middle of the desert so there is some mitigation now but i i don't think that any of us would deem it sufficient so that's fun yeah and this is timely i guess because uh, friday is earth day as it happens and i got a press release this morning from mlb touting the league's measures when it comes to sustainability and so forth mlb to highlight environmental awareness and sustainability on earth day and continuing throughout the season and the email does tout the various accomplishments of the league and not just the league but also a contingent of players called players for the planet which has been organized by the former MLB or Chris Dickerson and others so they've 
made some strides. I mean, they've done some stuff, and I don't want to discount that. So just uh, quoting from this email here, 22 clubs practice e-waste recycling. 22 clubs have installed LED field lighting. 19 clubs operate food donation programs. 12 ballparks utilize on-site gardens. 10 ballparks utilize solar power. 10 ballparks feature EV charging stations. 10 clubs activate regular season green teams. 7 clubs have permanently eliminated plastic straws from ballparks. 6 MLB ballparks are LEED certified. So, you know, there are some efforts and obviously like it's a drop in the bucket and MLB in general is a drop in the bucket right. of just like the total corporate carbon output and the U.S. carbon output in the context of the world. I mean, it's all just, you know, it's our tiny little corner of the world that we talk about or care about professionally. And so every little bit hurts, but also every little bit of help doesn't help that much in the grand scheme of things. Not that it's any less important, but yeah, I think it will become a greater area of emphasis, whether it's uh, out of genuine concern or out of PR. Either way, hopefully it does some good. And there was a a piece about this. I was thinking about this because Hannah Kaiser wrote a piece about this for Yahoo last December, and she talked about some of these efforts or some of the efforts that could be made. And she was talking about the impact of travel because, I mean, that's a big thing. Like teams are constantly crisscrossing the country in chartered jets and everything. And and there's a lot of emissions that come from that. And, you know, she dug into like the record of the league's political donations as well. And some of the politicians that they have donated to who are, uh, you know, taking actions that are contrary to the idea that MLB cares about the environment, et cetera. But I'll just, uh, yes, any number of things. But quoting from her piece here, and she is quoting from Seth Wines, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Geography, Planning, and Environment at Concordia University in Canada. When people talk about sustainability in sports leagues, a lot of the time, maybe they'll talk about recycling. Maybe they'll talk about how their players did a tree planting program on the weekend. A lot of those things are pretty close to greenwashing. You're doing an action that looks nice, but is not really substantial. It's not making a huge dent in your admissions in any way. What can make a huge dent, Hannah goes on to say, is drastically limiting travel like all the major sports leagues were forced to do in 2020 as a response to the pandemic. In a study recently published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology, Wines calculated the drop in carbon emissions per game for MLB, the NBA, NFL, and NHL based on their specific schedule alterations, which amounted to significantly less travel across sports. Travel accounts for about a quarter of the league's total emissions, according to that study. And so in 2020, baseball, which, you know, already has an advantage in that you have multi-day series that are played against the same opponent, which cuts down travel to some extent. But in 2020, teams only played opponents in their own division and the corresponding geographical division in the opposite league. And so there was a a 22% drop in carbon emissions per game, which is nice, but it seems like that will probably be set to go up, I guess, next year, right? Because there's going to be a more balanced schedule that will be put in place. And in principle, I like that. I like more balance to the schedule. So quoting from an MLB.com piece about this, 
Teams will face their four division opponents 14 times each season, seven home and seven away for a total of 56 games. They will also face the other 10 teams in their league six times apiece, playing a three-game set at each ballpark. So rather than 16 interleague games, teams will have 46 such games on the schedule, four against their geographic rival and three each against the other 14 teams alternating ballparks annually and so the upshot is that teams within the same division will have 91% of their games in common up from 84% under the current schedule system and schedules among teams in the same league will feature 76% of common opponents up from 52% in the more unbalanced schedule so I like that. I yeah. like the the fairness that comes from that, but I guess that also will inevitably result in more travel and more emissions, right? So that's just a, a downside, a, a negative byproduct of what could be a positive change, competitively speaking. How much would we benefit from more tightly constricted divisional realignment, I wonder? Yeah, I mean, right. right. If it was a 22% reduction in emissions in right. 2020 and you did that more often, like this is breaking down one of the few remaining differences between the leagues, which are now almost essentially the same post-universal yes. DH. I don't care about that particularly, but I guess you would get a similar reduction in emissions as you got in 2020, which would be nice. So yeah. it's tough. I, I guess you do maybe there's some some happy medium where right. you could get a balanced schedule that was also sort of geographically locked a little I, I mean there's also like hey it's an entertainment product and some variety in the teams that you play is right. nice too right like if you played all your games against the the same handful of teams and you just didn't have to travel that much well be good for the environment wouldn't be so good for baseball fans yeah, and you know, I think that we're right to point to travel as the primary sort of spot where this can make a difference. I mean, the plastic straw thing, man, it just doesn't matter. But yeah, that's a greenwash, eyewash <laughs> combination yeah, of, of greenwash heard, and eyewash. I don't know that I had heard the expression greenwash before, yeah. but that makes all the sense in the world. I think that you're you're never going to be able to get it just dialed in just right if you want to have teams play in places that aren't you know geographically concentrated but like it's weird that the mariners are in the same division as the rangers and the astros if what we want is to sort of minimize travel and i mean you still do have sort of a an east coast bias when it comes to where teams right. are located right just because of the geographical patterns of, of when expansion to the west coast happens so right and you do and we derive benefit from that right like it's it's good that some that there is the concentration in the the northeast and the sort of upper midwest west because it does yeah. i imagine do a good amount to to minimize travel it's those pesky west coast teams mm -hmm. i tell you yeah i don't know if i want to it's like just very contract the west coast <laughs> that's that's what the oakland A's <laughs> want us Aww. to do well they want to move to las vegas probably yeah. but still uh, it's a real it's a real monkey's paw situation for me mm -hmm. a, a sometimes mariners fan to be like realign things for closer geography and then be like go play the dodgers a bunch of games a year seattle right. that's gonna go well <laughs> yeah. but yeah it's it's a thorny issue there's like the the day-to-day -day, what is the league doing to sort of minimize its own carbon footprint there's the sort of business continuity planning aspect of it that is how are we going to play games in places that are subject to extreme weather events or might be underwater, mm -hmm. you know? So there's, it's thorny. It's almost as if we need broad 
impactful regulatory solutions <laughs> in any number of aspects that are just taken out of the hands of Major League Baseball. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, the travel isn't great. Like, I don't want to discount the amount of impact that that can have. But I think if we're pointing at industries that perhaps have contributed the most dramatically to the climate crisis, baseball is probably not super high on that list. No. No, it's just that this is a baseball podcast. So, right. <laughs> but yeah, I meant to mention, by the way, with the A's and with tracking their attendance and wondering how low it can go, we did get an email on April 1st from a disillusioned A's fan named Jacob who wrote to us, one thing I'll be keeping an eye on is if Oakland's two-year-old soccer club, Oakland Roots SC, oh. which plays in the American second division, USL, will actually outperform the A's in average attendance this year. Jacob says, I went to the Roots home opener a few weeks ago, and it was positively buzzing with all the great and wild vibes that come from Oakland sports fandom in a stadium with a 3,500 seat capacity and 5,500 for standing room. The game had an attendance of 5,508. So those extra eight people must have been sitting on the other standard shoulders or something. Oh. Compared with the minimum 34,000 capacity of the Coliseum, the average attendance for the two teams shouldn't be particularly close. One is a brand new, still mediocre second division soccer club. The other a four-time major league champion with a 54-year history in Oakland, adding a further dose of schadenfreude, at least toward John Fisher, A's owner. The Roots play at Laney College, the initial site the A's pitched a few years ago to build their new stadium without, of course, you know, consulting with or asking the community college district. Suffice to say, Oakland fans are diehard sports lovers, though not quite as stupid as Fisher would hope. So monitoring the 2022 average attendance at the Coliseum versus Roots games at the local community college football stadium is just another sad, inglorious chapter in the long saga of the utterly draining ownership of John Fisher. I'll keep you updated. And yes, please do. I would like to hear about this because uh, last year in the Oakland Roots season, they maxed out at 5,044 fans and they averaged 2016, which is just below where the A's were in their most recent game. And again, this was the third home game of the season. So the Roots really might give the A's a, a run for their lack of money. So yeah. we will see. We'll give you updates as Jacob provides them. So also this week's sign of the I don't want to say apocalypse. I guess the sign of the apocalypse has more to do with the weather postponements. But sign of the times is that Charlie Blackman became the first MLB player to have some sort of sports betting related endorsement deal, which is now permitted under the new CBA. So he became the first MLB player to endorse a sports book called Maxim Bet. And this is... Uh, Something I think you noted after the CPA came out that this was now allowed. Yep. It's weird. Yep. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, in the sense that like Blackman is endorsing a product that he can't use, use. Uh, at least when it comes to betting on baseball, I, right. I guess he could use it in other ways, but he's a brand ambassador for something and, and he can't be like, yeah, I use it to <laughs> bet on baseball all the time. Yeah. So I don't know exactly what form his endorsement will take. And he's not the first in, in one of the big sports, Connor McDavid, the Edmonton Oilers great, recently announced a, a partnership with BetMGM. I was wondering, I, I was not aware of Maxim Bet and Charlie Blackman seemed like an unlikely trailblazer. I was wondering, like, is, is Blackman the best player they could convince to do this? I mean, no shots at Blackman, but yeah. his best baseball days are, are perhaps behind him. Yeah. But it's actually that Maxim Bet is a, a Colorado-based company and, and oh, only sure. 
operates in Colorado currently, so it does make sense in that way. But it says he will take part in future marketing campaigns, fan events, promotions, and social media posts. And, you know, look, I I guess this was inevitable, and we are not against players getting theirs. Uh, You know, as long as leagues are certainly getting theirs, then players might as well cash in on this too. It's just the state of affairs that we have now. Although, you know, it's the sort of thing that, like, if you had told a fan about this or the league about this several years ago or decades ago, they would have said, no way, no how. (laughs) But here we are. So, you know, it it made me think, I mean, in the wake of this news, a a bunch of people were like, oh, Pete Rose, like, revisit. We do not have to hand it to Pete Rose. We do not have to hand it to Pete Rose. And and this says nothing about Pete Rose as far as I'm concerned. Pete Rose bet on baseball like if if charlie blackman bet on baseball then he should be punished too this is different he is endorsing betting on baseball but not endorsing players betting on baseball which is an important distinction you could say it's a a slippery slope and you know there was that nfl scandal about the player who was not currently playing but uh did make a, a small wager and and was suspended for it so you know there may be more of this and we've talked about the danger of potentially throwing games even in the minors perhaps and the fact that micro betting and the advent of being able to bet on any outcome at any time would make it basically undetectable in in all likelihood so these are concerns but pete rose in addition to just being a generally reprehensible person who i'm not really rooting for but beyond that what he did is way different from this I, i think the better comp is the situation in like the late 70s, early 80s, where Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays were briefly banned from baseball. They were placed on the permanently ineligible list because they were the spokespeople for casinos in Atlantic City. Yeah, they were like greeters, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. You know, they got some lucrative deals and they were prevented from holding jobs with the league at the same time. I mean, they were allowed to go to old timers days and things like that, but they couldn't work for the league in any kind of official capacity. Bowie Kuhn, the commissioner at the time, banned them that is a much closer comp to what is happening here i mean that's sort of the same situation so that shows you how much attitudes have changed i mean those bands were ruled back by commissioner peter uberoth in the mid 80s so they didn't last that long but the fact that like willie mays and mickey mantle literally willie mays and mickey mantle could be banned from baseball for just uh like you know being the the public faces of a casino a legal casino now you have Charlie Blackman, you know, just under the terms of the CBA, just uh, being the face of a sports book. Yeah, times have changed, not necessarily for the better in all ways. I think that having the reaction to this of like, I don't like it. I think it's weird. I think it's a strange blurring of the lines. It doesn't seem to be particularly good for the game that there is this hyper fixation on, on betting. Like, I think that's a perfectly defensible position. That is a position that I hold. I think that you're right to draw the distinction between what Blackman and Rose did. And we just don't, like, you don't need to get exercised on Pete Rose's behalf, right? Like, Mm -hmm. the gambling is one of the less reprehensible things that that guy has supposedly done, right? He is, you know, he's like a 
uh, an alleged statutory rapist, right? Yeah. Am I getting that right? I yeah. don't. I want to cut it if if my yeah. understanding is wrong. Like sex pest doesn't seem like a strong enough descriptor for what he is accused to have done. So, mm-hmm. like, we don't have to help rehabilitate that guy. We just don't. Like, there is a very clear difference between the gambling stuff that he did versus what is being allowed from an endorsement perspective now. And even if you felt for some reason, like he got a raw deal out of that, which I think is a strange position to hold given what it would mean to allow players to bet on games. Like there's other stuff going on with Pete Rose that makes him icky. So you don't have to waste your emotional energy trying to help the guy out. Right. Yeah. He has denied that allegation, but his excuse was that the woman, the girl that uh, he had some sort of sexual engagement with was 16 at the time, which was the age of consent, not 14 or 15. So, you know, when that's your defense. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So I don't have a ton to say about Otani, surprisingly, other than just to marvel at how amazing he is for the umpteenth time. Yeah, he's pretty great. Yeah. Ben, did you know that he's really great? I yeah. I every now and then I do have a moment where like, you know, he's not off to the best offensive start. He's been okay but not great. Yeah. And I'll catch myself thinking like, oh, this is not the greatest start for him. And then I'll remember that like literally a two-way player, like just playing every day, leading off, taking regular turns in the rotation, never allow ourselves to like just become complacent about this or not just marvel at how semi-miraculous it is just like on a daily or weekly basis. And he gave us a good reminder on Wednesday because he started a game as the pitcher against the Astros, although he made history even before he took the mound, right? Because he batted twice in the top of the first. So he became the first ever and probably last ever, unless there's uh, about to be another two-way player who hits leadoff to bat twice before taking the mound. So the Angels batted around in the first inning. They scored six runs. They knocked Jake Odorizzi out. Otani contributed to that. He walked and scored and then doubled and drove in runs. And then he took the mound for the rest of his then day's work. Then he took the mound. So this was like a classic tungsten arm O'Doyle oh. type of fun fact, although in this case, the lead did hold up and that score ended up being final and the Angels won. But a big reason why they won, not only his offensive contributions, but his contributions on the mound where he was perfect through five and a third and ended up going six, allowing one hit, one walk, striking out 12 Astros, by the way, tough team to strike out generally, even without Altuve in the lineup. And he was just dominant. I mean, he had his game face on, he was grunting and clapping and his stuff was nasty. I oh, my mean, God. <laughs> so nasty. Like, not only throwing hard as usual, but just going heavy on the splitter, heavy on the slider. Yeah. And, oh, man, I mean, yeah. we've talked plenty about how nasty the splitter is, but the slider now is, like, right up there in nastiness yeah. because – as Ben Clemens just documented in a post published at Fangraphs, as we have been speaking, yes, with the headline Shohei Otani is getting better, which is uh, right up my alley. That's yep. music to my ears. I talked about the likelihood that he could or would get better before the season started, and at least in some respects, he is because that slider, which he has tinkered with and improved over time, this sort of started last season, and now 
it is even more of an outlier. Like he gets so much horizontal movement yeah. on this thing for a pitch that is thrown as hard as it is. It's just, it's kind of a unique offering at yeah. this point. And so he has the slider, he has the splitter, he has the heater. He'll just drop in a curve every now and then or a cutter. I mean, he has so many pitches to throw at you and now much improved control and command. So he can put it where he wants it often and it's just nasty so he has been better on the mound probably than at the plate to this point and that could persist I mean we talked a lot about his two-way efforts last year but we probably talked more about the hitting good as he was on the mound and as good as he got on the mound during the season now he's just kind of consolidating those improvements and you know he had a shaky second start of the season so not saying he's going to be unhittable every time but Boy, that was fun to watch. So I knew he was starting and I was doing other stuff. And then I tuned in as he was taking the mound in the bottom of the first. And my first thought was, oh boy, they're already up 6-0. Like what happened to Jake Odorizzi? Is he okay? And then I don't know if you have this experience, but there are guys who I, if I know that they're in the lineup and I have a sense of them as being like a pro's pro, like the hitter that your favorite hitter likes to watch, they, they can be a good sort of canary in the coal mine for how a guy is going to look on a given night. Like you watch an at-bat and, you know, like it's one at-bat, whatever. It d- might not mean anything, but it can be like an, a good early indicator of a guy being on. I, I don't know if you have that experience, but I have that experience. And one of the guys on that list for me is Michael Brantley. Because like Michael Brantley is just, oh, yeah. he's just a great hitter. He's just yeah. one of my very favorite hitters to watch. He's fantastic. And Otani did him so dirty. <laughs> yeah. It was, and he was pissed. He was, yeah, because he's also like an even-tempered guy. Yes, you know? He's like very... Ice House Brantley, right? Yes. <laughs> but he he slammed his bat on the ground oh, and boy. like a little chip flew off it. Yeah. And Otani, of course, politely pointed to the chip because, yes. uh, you know, knowing him, like he would have walked over there and picked it up himself and yes. handed it to someone. <laughs> oh, oh boy. And he just, he just got him with that splitter. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, Otani maybe has it. He's got some cool stuff going on. And then... You know, and then Bregman flew out and I started navigating around to other games because I, I wanted to see what other you. folks were doing. I know. I'm sorry. I, I <laughs> see the thing about it is, Ben, I have this safety net when it comes to Otani because I know that no matter what happens, if I've missed it, you will tell me <laughs> I and will I will you, yes. feel I will feel as if I know what's what. And mm-hmm. so I navigated around to some other stuff. And so I missed Let's see. I'm embarrassed to admit this. Now you're going to think that I was derelict in my duty. So I came back in the fourth. I came back Mm -hmm. in the fourth because somebody had noted that he was maybe up to something. He was maybe doing a little something. And so I came back in the fourth in time to watch him strike out in order, Jeremy Pena, Michael Brantley, and Alex Bregman. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, we're going to settle in for a little bit of fun here. And then... And then the fifth happens, and that's all well and good. And then the sixth comes up, and he bumps to get on in his own perfect game. That was the best. I mean, spectacular. <laughs> a bunt to break up a perfect game or a yeah. hit, that's a common thing, right? But how often do you have the pitcher who is throwing a perfect game bunt for a hit while he has the perfect game going? That was the best. And then in the bottom of the inning, Nico Goodrum of the yes. Astros, he lays down a bunt. Yeah. It went foul, but yes. he got booed 
He by, got booed in his own ballpark. His own park, right. Because, yeah. like, presumably these are fans who are like, you know, we want to see Otani go for this right. or, like, unwritten rules or whatever, which is even more ridiculous because, you know, generally I'm fine with uh, working your way on however you can. Yes. It's not like this game was wildly out of hand anyway or that it was super late in the game. But beyond that, the pitcher just did that himself. Yes. How can you be mad at an Astro for just uh, responding in kind? But that was immensely amusing. So, yeah, he's, I mean, just just every skill he possesses. He, he was showing them all off in that game. Yeah, and he's, like, booking it down the line for that bunt single. Just yeah. booking it down there. He's like, I don't know. And then, like, they were throwing over, and he was, like, diving back to first. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> I don't know whether they're trying to tire him out or whether it was just, hey, he's a legitimate Right. base threat so right. you gotta throw over there but oh man it's just the best it was the best and it was a funny thing because i had stepped away for a minute and then come back i had sort of lost track of where the angels were in the in the lineup and so you know i i watch jordan alvarez fly out and i watch kyle tucker called out on strikes and i see yuli Gurriel go down swinging and he's another one where it's like this guy puts together really good at bats Guriel is another one of those guys where I'm like, if he is able to do something here, like if anyone's going to be able to, it's probably going to be a guy like him. And he goes mm -hmm. down swinging. And then I thought to myself, okay, I can like spend the next half inning getting part of the edit that I have to do down. And I couldn't do that because there was Odani ready for yep. me. Uh, we're just, we've said it before on this podcast with respect to Otani. We've said it about Mike Trout. We've said it about any number of guys. We just get to watch some really fantastic baseball. We are so lucky to be able to watch these guys. These guys are incredible. And uh, it wasn't a perfect game, but boy, he it was a special outing. It was still mm -hmm. a special outing, even if it wasn't perfect. So Yeah. I feel bad for Jeremy Pena, who, by the way, is off to a great start yeah. and is like dramatically out hitting Carlos Correa thus far. And yeah. he just like he looks good. He looks like a yeah, good player to me. He but does. the pitcher he has faced most often thus far in his brief big league career is Shohei Otani, yeah. who he's faced five times and he struck out four of those times. And he has looked completely helpless against that Otani slider. So rough introduction to the big leagues, but generally things have gone yeah. quite well for him. Yeah, he's. I think I mentioned that I, I ducked out to see the D-backs play the Astros when, when Houston was here. And that was the first time I got to see Pena in person and he looked great. Mm -hmm. You know... I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do the stereotypical scouting trope. He's just. He looks like a ball player, you know. Yes, like the body's yes great. It's funny though because he he has had various like little winter ball stints, including in Leadome. And so whenever he comes to the plate, I hear his name in the Leadome announcer voice, Jeremy Pena. <laughs> and like that's you know that's neither here nor there, but I think about it every time. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a good segue into the way I want to end this, which is with a stat blast. Stat blast. They'll take a data set certify something like ERA minus or OBS plus And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length and analyze it for us in amazing ways Here's today's step last Okay, as a reminder, the Stat Blast segment is sponsored by StatHead, which is itself powered by Baseball Reference. You all, I hope, know and love StatHead, the most powerful collection of sports research tools on the internet, 
as Stathead puts it, you can go to stathead.com and you can look up virtually anything you want to about not just MLB, but also other sports leagues if you are so inclined. So you can look up uh, which season had the most 30-30 players or what pitcher had the most 10 strikeout games or who hit the most homers in any 100 game span. You can do all of those things and more with Stathead, which we avail ourselves of often, (laughs) whether we are sponsored by Stathead or not. So please do go to stathead.com and use the coupon code WILD20. That is W-I-L-D-2-0. And you can get $20 off of the $80 annual subscription to Stathead. And you will uh, encourage Baseball Reference to continue sponsoring us. It is obviously up the alley of our listeners and us, for that matter. We use it all the time and recommend that you do as well. So stathead.com, code WILD20. In fact, it's so second nature for me to use Stathead that I forgot that I already used it once today because we got an email from a listener, Eli, who wanted to know whether Dante Bichette, who has 5.7 career baseball reference war, has the lowest war total for someone with that many all-star game appearances or with multiple appearances, at least. I looked that up in a second on Stathead, and the answer is no, actually, there are four players who have made four or more all-star appearances, who had lower career wars than Dante Bichette, although they were all catchers, in fairness, so maybe they had some extra framing value that's not accounted for. Raleigh Hemsley was a five-time all-star with 3.8 career war, so he's the record holder there. Or among players who made multiple all-star games, in his case, three. He made two in one year when they used to have two all-star games in a single season. Hal Smith, another catcher, he had 1.9 war. But Bichette, certainly unusual among non-catchers in recent years. Defensive stats and ballpark adjustments are not kind to him. But there you go. A little bonus stat blast from Stathead before the actual stat blast, which starts now. So this Otani outing, coupled with a few pieces that have been published this week, have driven me to a conclusion, an epiphany about baseball. I now know how to fix it. (laughs) I know how to fix all that ails the sport in one fell swoop. So here's what I'm going to say. One thing that Otani has done this season is throw harder which Ben noted in his piece. He didn't go into how or why he's thrown harder. What's happened is it's not that he has upped his max velo. It's that he's upped his average velo. So this season, his hardest pitch has been 100.3. Last season, his hardest was 101.0. So it's not that he has found deeper reserves of velocity. It's just that his average velo, which is up, more than two miles per hour from 95.7 to 97.8. That is because he has not taken anything off. And last year, he did that regularly, actually, more than anyone, maybe anyone other than Carlos Rodan. I wrote about that in an end-of-season piece about Otani. He had sort of a Verlander-esque pattern of taking something off, or if you want to put it this way, adding something on, in tight spots, in high leverage moments, with runners on base, etc., he would throw harder. He would reserve his best stuff for then. Now, it seems like he's just kind of going all out. And that could be a result of the fact that, well, he feels stronger and healthier now. It could also, I think, be a result of the Otani rule, because he no longer has to worry about the Angels being shorthanded in the lineup now when he gets pulled from the game, because he gets to stay in as DH. So 
before he had even more incentive to try to lengthen those outings. Now he can just kind of go all out and he is. And so that might be another reason why he could be more effective on an inning per inning basis this season. And so this start that he had was kind of emblematic of a start in 2022, right? Because he was nasty, but he only went six and he was pulled after 81 pitches. And, you know, you talk about, uh, Roki Sasaki being pulled from his perfect game attempt after completing his first perfect game. And then Clayton Kershaw, of course, and just generally looking around the league, you have all sorts of pitchers who are being pulled at points of dominant outings where in the past they might have been allowed to go longer. And so I was thinking about this this week because Russell Carlton, friend of the show, frequent former guest, He published a piece at Baseball Prospectus, which was great. I think it sort of summed up something that we're all aware of, but maybe haven't put into words. And he wrote that basically like all pitching is relieving now. Even starting pitching is relieving to a greater extent than it has been. And just quoting for him here, there's been for a while an unspoken shift in pitching usage that we need to talk about. Everyone knows that the average start now lasts just a bit more than five innings. And even if you control for the opener effect and look for the pitcher who recorded the most number of outs for each team, that doesn't move the needle much either. It's a relievers league. But I don't think that fully captures what's going on here. I think that this normally gets labeled as pitchers aren't as able to sustain as they used to be, when that's not the case. If you want to understand modern pitching usage, you need to remember seven words. Everyone is a reliever, even the starters. And he goes on to say, I'd argue that the idea of a predetermined endpoint to an outing is what really launched the reliever evolution. You know, as he's written before, we now have this uh, invasive species, not feral cats, but one-inning relievers who've kind of become the, the dominant mode of relief pitching. And Russell writes, there were pitchers who didn't start, but they were failed starters and they pitched like starters. The modern reliever is a new species of baseball player. We're now seeing those predetermined endpoints moving into the starting rotation. It might be six innings or 18 batters or 100 pitches, but the effects are going to be similar. With an end in sight, a starter can ration the energy meter to fit the job. It's a much larger job in terms of innings covered, but there's an endpoint. If endpoints were what made pitchers into relievers, then just about everyone is a reliever now. And so speaking of the Clayton Kershaw outing, he says we're going to have another one of these at some point, a pitcher being pulled after five or six, no hit, or perhaps even perfect innings. I mean, we did have that with you, Darvish, right? Yeah. yeah, So that's happened. And and then it happened with Mania, right? Right after that. So this happens. And while it will be a rarity, he says, there will be the more common days when a starter is shown to the shower after five or six innings of one run ball. The fans will wonder why. The answer is that if you have an endpoint, you have to stick to it. And what they'll probably miss is that the endpoint might just have been the reason for the good outing. In the third inning, maybe the pitcher reached back for a little extra to get that key strikeout in a situation that might have spiraled into a three-run inning. But knowing that it was going to be a five-and-dive anyway, the pitcher might have said, well, why not here? So if you're one of those people who saw the Kershaw decision and thought that the end was near, you were probably more right than you thought. Everyone is a reliever now, and it's the endpoints that have changed everything. So if you know you're not going to go more than five or six, then you're just going to go all out. And so it's not that you can look at someone who is lifted after six and say, oh, well, he could have gone seven or eight or something and could have kept up that pace. 
the reason why he was so dominant for those five or six innings might be that he knew that was all he needed. And so he used up everything in the tank, right? And Justin Choi wrote for Fangrass at the same time about the boost in pitcher velocity mm-hmm. that we've seen this season, which is something I brought up on our most recent episode that we thought we had reached a velocity plateau, but it doesn't look like it. That was uh, just the base camper or a point along the ascent. And there will be a new summit in our future when it comes to velocity. And some of that is that the Hunter Greens of the world come along and they're throwing super hard. Some of that, though, is that established pitchers are able to gain velocity, whether it's through some sort of uh, velocity development program or whether it's this, whether it's that they are not pacing themselves anymore. They are just going all out now. And so I wanted to try to quantify that. And with some help from Lucas Apostolaris of Baseball Prospectus, I did. So with Otani, last year, it was really notable that the difference between his like 95th percentile velocity and his average velocity was 3.3 miles per hour. And that is a, a very large gap. So, you know, his average fastball was more than three ticks slower than when he would really reach back and and dial it up for some of his fastest fastballs. This year so far, it's under two. It's 1.95. So he has really changed his pitching pattern. And that is emblematic of the league as a whole. And if you look at the trend over time, and we have this data going back to 2008, And I will post the data and the graphs and the spreadsheets online and link on the show page. Hard to describe a graph on (laughs) a podcast. (laughs) Well, there's one line that is uh, going down at, at roughly this angle. And then there's another line in a different color that is going down slightly more steeply. Yeah, but basically there has been a decline almost every season of the pitch tracking data era between the average pitcher's 95th percentile four-seamer and his average four-seamer. And the same pattern shows up if you look at the gap between the 95th percentile four-seamer and the fifth percentile, so the fastest and slowest, like the, the full range between max and min. And we're using percentiles here, not like the literally fastest and slowest pitch, because sometimes there are data errors, uh, right, especially right. with some of those early years. And so yeah. we're looking at 95th percentile and fifth percentile instead. So... For instance, in 2008, let's say the first year that we have on record here, the league-wide average, and you know this is uh, weighted by playing time, by the number of four-seamers thrown, but the average gap between the 95th percentile four-seamer and the average four-seamer for starting pitchers was 2.21. This season, so far, it's 1.61. And yeah, smallish sample, but it's been below two every year starting with 2019, and it was above two every year on record prior to that. So again, 2.21 to 1.61, which, you know, might not sound huge, but on a percentage basis, that is a a pretty big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And it's gone down like Almost every single year. There was a a little bit of a rebound last year. But prior to that, it's basically been, you know, either steady or or just creeping down year after year after year. And the same if we look at the the full range, the, the max versus min, like 2008 for starters. The average difference between 95th percentile four seamer and fifth percentile was 4.7. This year so far, it's 3.3 which is huh. you know a huge drop off and a you know, small sample, but it's been under four each of the past 
four seasons. And you could say the same about, you know, the other metric that I just cited. It's just been consistently lower and lower. And the gap seems to be shrinking more, especially in recent years, for starters than relievers. So this is true to some extent with relievers as well, where, you know, in 2008, the gap was 1.87. This year, it's 1.45 so far. So again, it's it's lower, but it has decreased even more for starting pitchers because, you know, relievers were already kind of one inning arms for the most right. part in 2008. But we've seen a really drastic change in starting pitcher usage, right. even just during this period of, you know, 15 seasons or so. So this is intensifying. This is proceeding. And I think it is going to continue to. And I think that is dangerous. I think that is bad. (laughs) And I think that something should be done to change this. And so let me quote from yet another piece that was published this week, which is Jason Starks. And he did his uh, 10 numbers to know for this season. And a couple of those numbers were about pitcher usage and just, you know, the shortness of spring training and the injury risks and the use of relievers. So quoting from Jason here, we're coming off the most injury riddled season in history. So no one should be shocked to learn that we're headed for one just like it after the second shortened camp in three years, according to Derek Rhodes, who monitors injuries for baseball prospectus, there were 159 non COVID injured list placements in the first 12 days of the season, an average of more than 13 per day. That's nearly identical to last year. Shoulder and torso injuries are up, upper leg injuries are down, but the trend remains the same, and it's one every team fears, and the greatest fears are reserved for starting pitchers. So an anonymous AL executive said, our concern is starting pitchers. I don't think there's any doubt that would be the biggest concern of every team. With very few exceptions, we didn't have enough time to get their pitch counts up. Start continues, you know what almost everybody in baseball seems to agree on? There are too many freaking pitching changes. You know what everybody in front offices around baseball is willing to do about it? Pretty much nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's so easy, said one exec, to play plug and play and go get another arm. So what MLB is doing about it, Stark says, two new rules, both aimed at this bullpen epidemic, go into effect next month. Roster limits, no more than 13 active pitchers on a staff, which we've been waiting for for a while and a cap on how many times any player can be freely optioned to the minors in a given season five. So will the new rules work? Quote, the five option limit will play some role, said one AL exec, and the 13 pitcher limit may impact it a little. But to be honest, I don't think this will change the way teams put pitching staffs together. If the data tells these teams that a certain reliever in AAA matches up better with the next team on their schedule, Stark says, than that last arm in the bullpen, guess who's coming up and guess who's going down? Quote, as much as the commissioner's office may try to dissuade us from doing things, said the same exec, there aren't enough guardrails in place. Even five options is still a lot. You can still move a guy up and down once a month, and that's what's going to happen. Most teams are building pitching staffs around relief pitching now, not starting pitching, said one exec. I know the commissioner's office is trying to find ways to incentivize letting starting pitchers go five, six, seven innings because those great starting pitcher matchups are what fans want to see, but it's not working. I watched minor league games this spring where it seemed like every pitcher threw 70 to 80% breaking balls. If you do that, you're not throwing six or seven innings, and that's where the game is heading in the age of Trackman and Rapsodo. We mentioned that on our last episode, that this is the first season on record with more non-fastballs than fewer fastballs. 
Another executive in this article says every team wants starters who can go deep. There isn't a manager in baseball who doesn't want Max Scherzer. No manager is rushing to replace his best starter after five innings and put in his fifth best reliever, except for Dave Roberts, I guess. (laughs) But that's just a fact. But there are only a certain number of guys who can actually do that, have great stuff that doesn't fade. Our matchup proof can give you both quality and bulk. The problem is that starting pitchers are having a harder time than ever staying healthy and carrying bulk. And I don't know what the answer is. We've tried just about everything. We haven't found anything concrete that we know is going to work. I am here to tell you what the answer is. And the answer is that we have to have even stricter limits and caps on the number of pitchers who can be on the roster at any one time. I think 13 is a start. I mean, it it gets the idea out there. It sets some precedent, but I don't think that's going to do it. You're still going to be able to carry five starting pitchers and eight relievers at any given time, and you can still shuffle some of those relievers, right? I think it needs to be stricter. I think it needs to be 12, 11, <laughs> you know, maybe ah. 10 is too strict, but I think we need to get down to that point because yeah. in my mind, that would fix everything. <laughs> like this, more than any other single thing you could do, I really think that this would address a lot of potential problems. Like it would be something that provides solutions on a lot of fronts at the same time. So one is this idea of pitchers just not pacing themselves, which we've been talking about here. That's the subject of this stat blast. Pitchers are just going max effort. And as further evidence of that beyond just the numbers that show that to be the case, let me play a quick clip from an interview with rookie and top prospect for the Mariners, Matt Brash, Brash. who just did an interview with Rob Freeman, the pitching ninja. And here's about a a 30-second clip of him. That's kind of when I got to the Mariners too, that's kind of what they're telling me. I, before I'd been trying to like spot up my fastball in corners and throw my slider down away every pitch and stuff. And they're just like, you don't have to do that. You just have to fill up the zone, have your catcher set up middle and you're not going to hit middle every time you're going to spray the ball. So um, I pretty much have the catcher set up middle and um, I throw my stuff full effort. Like I don't take a pitch off. I don't baby anything. Like I'm throwing it as hard as I can every pitch. So that's Brash just saying, yeah, I'm throwing as hard as I can on every pitch, max effort. And that's what the team is telling him to do. So it's not just like, you know, some brash young rookie, so to speak, who uh, is just heedless of of the future. (sighs) Like, this is what pitchers are being taught to do. I hear you saying, and I will preserve your side. (laughs) I'm just really proud of you, you know? I just, um, I don't know if I've been a good influence. Your your habits. I don't know if you're good or bad habits, but yeah. I'm proud of you. (laughs) So this is what pitchers are being taught to do. You can't blame the pitchers for doing this because, for one thing, like, It works. It makes them more effective. Uh, Matt Brash, pretty nasty, and he throws hard. And also, it's on the teams who are telling the pitchers to do this. But this is a problem in a number of ways. It's a problem because pitchers are gassed earlier, because they expect to be gassed, and, and they're okay with being gassed, and their teams tell them to be gassed and empty out the tank. That's one thing. But also... I really think that is responsible for the increase in injury rate that we've seen here. I mean, yes, maybe it has to do with the compressed spring training and the pandemic shortened years and all of that. But it's not just that. I mean, we've seen injury rates rise even as teams have been more responsible when it comes to workloads and when it comes to innings limits, right? And yet guys are still blowing out their arms constantly. And I think it's because if anything, like if I had to choose between the old model of, you know, maybe you throw 120 pitches 
but not all of those pitches are max effort versus you throw 90 pitches, but all of them are all out at all times. I think I might choose the former. I mean, yes, like you could abuse pitchers, you know, when they had yes. no regard for pitch counts, obviously, yeah. like especially for young pitchers and, and there were many careers ended. But I think we've gone so far when it comes to like 100 pitches being a hard limit that we have kind of ignored the stress and the strain produced by these pitches disproportionately on yeah. a per pitch basis. And there's a, an article at the Driveline Baseball Research blog from a few years ago that goes through the research up to that point about velocity and injury risk. And generally, the thinking, at least at that time, was that, yes, throwing harder tends to correlate with higher injury risk, like from pitcher to pitcher. I mean, if you just look at like average velocity versus, you know, average days on the IL or, or whatever, some very blunt tool like that, you will find that on the whole, harder throwing pitchers tend to suffer more injuries or more arm injuries, but the effect is much more pronounced when you look at individual pitchers and when they throw toward the top of their own velocity range. That's where the real danger is. So quoting from this piece, when you're watching a pitcher throw at the high end of his velocity spectrum, you can assume that he is experiencing higher levels of torque than usual. Velocity is a risk factor for injuries in professional pitchers because it is likely that the harder one pitcher throws, the more torque he experiences. It's difficult to compare torque among pitchers, but as one pitcher throws harder, he'll experience more stress. So in this AFSMI study that was referenced in this piece, it was recommended that pitchers should vary their velocities because the more they try to throw at high intent, the higher torques they're experiencing. And as this driveline piece notes, asking pitchers to throw slower often means asking them to give away a competitive advantage for an unmeasurable and unknowable gain in health, which they might not be able to benefit from because throwing at lower velocity could mean worse statistics and a shorter career. So yes, if you're Jacob deGrom and you're unhittable at 99, do you need to throw 100? Maybe not necessarily, but no one else is Jacob deGrom. And so for most pitchers, hey, they need to worry about like game to game. You know, they can't do long-term planning and nebulous benefits they have to just be all out all the time because that's what they're being told to do. And that's what they think will make the money and what will keep them on the roster. So I get it. That's why you need the league to step in and not say, well, you can't throw hard. I mean, you know, we've answered a listener email about that, like having some penalty for if you throw above a certain miles per hour or something like you, you have a automatic ball assessed or something. Right. I don't think that kind of idea is really workable. But if you just put this roster restriction in place, if you say that you can only have 12 pitchers or 11 pitchers or whatever you determine the best number to be, that could address so many problems. Because on the one hand, pitchers will be forced to pace themselves, right? You will have to hold something in reserve to go deeper into games because you know that there won't be just an enormous bullpen with an, an endless parade of hard-throwing arms behind you. And so you will have to hold a little bit back, which will give a number of benefits. One, starting pitchers will last longer in games, which we like and which we miss. <laughs> we like starting pitchers going deeper into games and not having the parade of relievers every time. So that's a benefit. I think it would decrease injury risk. Even if you had longer outings and you threw more pitches cumulatively, if you were taking something off and not throwing max effort every time, 
I think that would actually help with the injury risk. And, you know, not having the break of pitchers hitting now, which I'm all in favor of universal DH, but you don't get to take that plate appearance off anymore, right? So you kind of have to be more max effort because of that too. But if you know that you have to pace yourself, then you will take a little off. And I think it might actually save your arm. And there might be other benefits too, right? Because if pitchers are not throwing as hard, well, maybe there's more contact, right? Maybe there are more hits, higher batting averages. So you might have positive effects when it comes to offense as well. You'd have fewer pitching changes. And so it helps you with time of game. I mean, just like every trend that we talk about as potentially off-putting and worrisome, I really think this just like cleanly and neatly and efficiently and with a minimum of heavy handed intervention can actually help you. And it's something that I think you could sell more easily than, say, moving the mound back, which I've been an advocate of. And, you know, I think the effects of that are a little less clear. And also there's just more resistance and, you know, less recent precedent and all of that. I think this you could sell like if they put the 13 pitcher limit in place, well, you know, then it's just, okay, we're uh, we're knocking that down a pitcher or two, right? I mean, you can do that. It's like uh, with the three batter minimum or something. I mean, you know, you always had some minimum where you had to face at least one batter. Well, now you have to face at least three. Like it's it's workable. And I find that less distasteful than something like the shift, for instance, which is meddling with in-game strategy Right. with this, you know, and it's like, oh, you can't stand there. You have to stand here with this. It's like you can only carry a certain number of this type of player. Now, what you do with those players, how you deploy them in games, that's up to you. You can manage your staff however you want to manage it, but you only have this number of pitchers available to you. That to me, like, sure, if there were no problem I wouldn't say we should limit that, you know, just uh, have it be, you know, the market decides, right, which worked for quite a while, but now it doesn't seem to be working as well. If you did that, then I think there could be issues, I guess, with like, you know, pitchers losing their jobs. You know, I don't know how like the union would feel about this. I mean, you're not taking away roster spots but you are maybe taking roster spots away from pitchers and you're changing the balance of roster composition, but that balance has changed as it is. I mean, it's already changed in the other direction, right? So like, you know, hitters have lost roster spots now to pitchers. So now you're just, you know, the pendulum swings back in the other direction. So I don't know, am I off base here? Like to me, this is as close as you can come to a panacea that is like, not something that would make the product worse in my mind and might actually be something you could sell. Ben, you just said so many words. <laughs> I feel strongly about this uh, subject. You said a lot of words. Yeah. I think I agree with most of them. Okay. I like the <laughs> I like the idea of having some understanding of our roster cuz I I think you're right that like 13 is probably not a tight enough restriction to really curtail the behavior that we have seen from teams lately and that really tamping down on the number of available pitchers is probably right. I do fret about the injury component of that. And so I wonder if one solution is to have like that tight restriction, as you say, on like an active game day roster, but have more pitchers than that available who Mm. aren't subject to option shenanigans, Uh right? So have... Have it be more like the NFL where you have like your active 
big league roster, but then you are on any given day sort of declaring here are active guys this day and only a certain number of them can be pitchers so that you have more sort of day-to-day optionality in terms of the guys that you're using and you're not worried about overtaxing anyone and you can sort of rotate guys through and teams already do this to some extent by saying that like some guys aren't available because of usage but like we could maybe formalize that process I don't know if that is an unnecessary step or if it would even really address the problem that I'm a bit worried about so I do think that like the research at a driveline tends to be good like we probably should note that like the place that makes guys throw harder is probably not going to tell you it's bad for guys to throw harder yeah (laughs) we could say that is that unfair well except in this case they are kind of saying yeah I guess they are I mean they've contributed to the rise of velocity for sure like you know they're not innocent here like they have contributed to this right i'm not saying they're guilty either right like yeah we probably need tighter restrictions on the number of guys because absent that they will just always have 13 on there and that still affords a a fair number of pitching changes but i don't want there to be other like knock-on effects of that where you have guys that get used a lot of days in a row and maybe they'll just manage that but maybe we could just right. have active game day rosters and then we worry about it less so you say like that guy's tired he can't pitch today yeah you put right. in the non-tired guy and you still have those dudes they still get to float around but you know you're you're using fewer of them in game that doesn't lead to deeper benches so that's a downside because yeah. yeah, we do I'm, we do love a deep bench we want we do we want the Vroom Vroom guy. I mean, yeah. we don't want specifically the Vroom Vroom guy because that's bad strategy, but we want the potential for offensive specialists in a way that if the roster spots are still being filled by pitchers, even if we are curtailing the number who can appear in any given game, that doesn't achieve that goal. But we right. still maybe see fewer guys pitching. Yeah. I don't know. I'm right. Another way you could do this is just to, like, you know, have the same roster size or, as you said, kind of a floating roster and a taxi squad or whatever. And then you could have limits on the number of pitchers you can use in a single game. You know, you can only make this number of pitching changes, let's say. To me, maybe it addresses some of those concerns you brought up, but it's also, I think, like more intrusive or or interventionist or like, you know, to, to say like you can't change pitchers here because you already change pitchers x times in this game and then you know you'd get some weird ones where like just some guys got hurt maybe you'd have an exemption for injuries but then that could be manipulated and then like you know maybe it was just a day where a few guys didn't have it right and then do you just have to let someone stay out there to just wear it for a while because you have that limit i just i kind of like just having the broad limit of you're only allowed this many players and you know do with that what you will you know you have this many toys in the toolbox and you can arrange them however you want but that's the constraint and i also think that that would actually add some interesting strategy too right like right now there's not that much strategy surrounding like pitching changes you know and i don't think there was that much even when pitchers hit really but it's often just like you know third times through the order or or guys out of gas or whatever it's just like automatic you're not surprised when someone is pulled but if you had this situation then every decision would not just be how it affects today's game but how it affects tomorrow's and the day after and september right i mean you'd have to weigh those workloads And there'd be a lot of thought that goes into that, a lot of cost-benefit analysis that we could kind of play armchair managers along with at home. So 
I think that is a, another perk of this. So I think there could be a risk in implementing this like overnight, you know, like mid season. I mean, and 10 feels like a very small number. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you'd want to go one at a time, I think. 10 is too few because you got, you have to carry five starters. Some yeah. teams carry six. So then right. you only have four guys. You yeah, only got your. That's too that's, few. Yeah. I mean, you know, there were eras of baseball where that <laughs> was the case, or there were fewer relievers than that even. But you couldn't go from where we are right now to like doing this tomorrow because no. pitchers are conditioned now to go all out all the time. So you would have to have some period of like easing them into this and being like, hey, throughout almost all of baseball history, there was the idea of, you know, the Christy Matthewson pitching in a pinch, right? You'd take a little off here and, and put a little more on there and you would pace yourself. And that allowed players to go deeper into games and to pitch more often on back-to-back days. And yes, there was abuse that happened then too. But I think we could find some happy medium, maybe, between having like a lot of very short outings and long breaks in between them and you know just piling pitches and innings on guys' arms in an irresponsible way. I think there is a happy medium. And I think we need to do something to curtail this max effort all the time and that it could really have some broad benefits. And I think I've read this quote before from the David Halberstam book, The Teammates, which I like a lot. And this quote is uh, the former Cardinals pitcher, Harry Brackeen, who is uh, talking to the younger Cardinals pitcher, Murray Dixon. And he says, Murray, times are changing. You can't do what you used to do anymore. You've got to go out there and throw as hard as you can for as long as you can. That quote was 1947. So this idea, you know, like you've had to be probably more max effort as the caliber of competition has increased year after year after year. But I feel like that last part of what Brookeen said back then for as long as you can, like that's out the window now. It's just as hard as you can for not long. And you know in advance that it's not going to be long. And there are all kinds of knock-on effects that come from that. So again, this is my new position. (laughs) This is what I'm advocating now. If I were commissioner for a day, if I could make one single rule change that I think would have some sweeping positive effects on the sport, it would be this, a, a stricter cap on the number of pitchers you can carry on your active roster. I yeah, okay. I'm here for this experimentation. We have to we have to start small yes. and work backward. Mm-hmm. I have to bring some breaking news to the pod though. Mickey? Are you ready? Yeah. Ben. Yeah. So Mickey did not get his 3000th hit. <laughs> okay. But can I tell you why? Why? Okay. I'm going to read out what happened in this inning and then you're okay. going to I want to hear your honest reaction. You tell me what you think. So this is the eighth inning. This is the bottom of the eighth. So Victor Reyes doubled, and then Robbie Grossman singled, and then Jonathan Scope walked. So we might conclude from that that the bases are loaded, and in fact, they were. No Mm -hmm. outs, right? Okay. Okay. So then Heimer Condelario grounds into a double play. Victor Reyes was out at home. Robbie Grossman made it to third, Scope to second, Candelario out at first, right? Okay. They They threw Reyes out at home. They got Heimer Candelario at first. Then two outs. They intentionally walked Miguel Cabrera. Oh, no. Boo. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) they intentionally walk Miggy. And then, as if to say on the part of the baseball gods, Aaron Boone, I did not care for the cut of your jib. Austin Meadows doubled. (laughs) 
<laughs> and Robbie Grossman scored, and Jonathan Scope scored, and Miggy made it to third, and then Eric Haas grounded out, and that concluded the inning, and the Tigers would hold on to win 3-0. to zero. Mm-hmm. But first of all, I am not convinced that this was even sound strategy. But even yeah. if it were, look, we spent we spent a good part of a podcast not long ago talking mm-hmm. about how your role as a baseball player is to try to press your advantage. You are trying to win. You're trying to win. Mm-hmm. And you should try to win if you're blowing out the other team and you should try if you are, you know, on the wrong side of a no-hitter or a perfecto. You know, we probably wouldn't have booed Nico Goodrum. You know, he's just mm-hmm. trying to get on base. That's his job as a baseball player. I hate this. It makes <laughs> me feel very angry. I am surprised by the amount of anger that I feel. And so I'm sure we will um, noodle on that more. And I cannot wait. I have already bothered one Ben Clemens to write about this for Fangrass.com. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is, that it was a choice. It was like a very active choice. And I feel like the baseball gods have spoken about what they think about it. Yeah. And, you know, if this were 2006, Miggy could have reached out and gotten his 3,000th hit on the intentional ball, right? (laughs) But uh, it is no longer 2006 and he can't do that anymore, sadly. So he just had to walk to first. But yeah. That's deflating, I'm sure, for yeah. the fans in attendance. Uh, it's it's spoil sport, no fun. Although it is kind of nice, I guess, that Miggy can command that kind of respect at this stage of his career. Whether he should have <laughs> is another conversation, but kind of nice that uh, even now, as he is, you know, in the latter stages in the twilight here, they still didn't want to face him in that situation. I guess that's kind of cool. But. Yeah, okay. I don't know. I think it's terrible. I think it's a crime. I think that Aaron Poon should go to prison. He got booed in a profound way by the Assembled Tigers fans. People were very angry about this choice, quite exercised. And so I can't believe it. David Lorla of Fangrass.com tweeted that Miguel Cabrera hasn't been intentionally walked in his last 625 plate appearances. (laughs) Wow. It's huh. a lot of them. Anyway, yeah. I okay. just felt like we had to bring some closure to this yes. saga. Mm-hmm. I know that tomorrow, let's see, tomorrow they play the Rockies at home, but that is an evening game. So we are planning mm-hmm. to record earlier than the evening tomorrow. So we will mm-hmm. have to take up, hopefully, a celebration of Miggy's uh, 3,000th hit next week and the decision to intentionally walk him at the 2999th will probably still be reverberating around baseball twitter boo yeah okay well thanks for your indulgence as i evangelized my new pet rule change i will probably write about this at some point but thanks for helping me workshop it in podcast form first Meant to mention, by the way, a pretty good way to sum up Otani's singular dominance on Wednesday is maybe that he reached base in the first inning as many times as he allowed his opponents to reach base in six innings. It's not a bad little fun fact. In Ben Clemens's Otani blog, he says, I'll make a ludicrous comparison here. Recent vintage Otani looks like a high-velocity version of peak Corey Kluber. So, Corey Kluber, to refresh your memory, won multiple Cy Young Awards. Otani, like that, but throws harder. Not a bad comp, and that's just the pitching part. An update on attendance at the Oakland Coliseum, 4,429, not counting cats, paid to see the A's beat the Orioles on Thursday. 
I should also note we talked on our last episode about whether the Canadian vaccine mandate and the trips to Toronto would produce more vaccinated players. We talked about some of the players who did not get vaccinated when they made trips to Toronto. But it does appear that some, at least, have had this function as extra incentive to finally get the jab. So it would appear that the Yankees' last couple of holdouts have gotten vaccinated. And so Aaron Boone has said that all of the Yankees will be eligible to make their trip to Toronto in the first week of May. So that's nice. Nice to hear that that is working in at least some cases. The second episode of Better Call Saul that I recapped on the aforementioned podcast this week is called Carrot and Stick. And it's all about which one works better. Punishing people for not doing something or incentivizing people for doing something. Better Call Saul seems to suggest that the punishment tends to work better. And I suppose that this tends to suggest that too. And lastly, we got a bunch of responses to our discussion of replay review signals. And I will read this one email here from listener West who says, listening to your follow-up on the overhead headphones gesture being the current symbol for replay review and the mention that in NPB it's drawing a screen, a couple of other examples in sports that could be used. In soccer, the referee also draws a box in the air to indicate that they are going to use VAR, the video assistant referee. Managers can't challenge in soccer, but instead the referee who is off the field watching the game on TV monitors can buzz down to the referee on the field that they should look at something that was questionable. In the NFL, of course, you have throwing a red flag. In the NBA, the universal sign for when a referee will do a video replay review for a challenge or a close call is to twirl your index figure as you point up, I think signifying rewinding the tape for review. Wes says, I haven't watched enough NBA to know if coaches make the same motion when they are issuing a formal challenge. So thanks to everyone who wrote in about the way that that works in other sports. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Tim Collingwood, Penelope Maddie, Oz Jensen, Devon Brannon, and David Harris. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include a couple of playoff live streams, access to the Patreon-exclusive Discord group, Discordantly Wild, and monthly bonus pods hosted by me and Meg. You can contact us via email at podcast.fangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectivelywild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. I had planned a double-barreled stat blast today, but this one went long, so I will get to the next one probably tomorrow. And we met Gabriel Arias today, but he's too good for a major leaguer segment. He's too highly touted a prospect, so we will probably bring back that segment with some more obscure major leaguers next time, and we'll answer some emails too. So we'll be back with one more episode before the end of this week. Talk to you soon. 